Good morning, New Life. My name is uh, Will. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Press, and uh, it is a joy to be with you all here today. And we are starting a new series looking at the book of Philippians, where this author, the Apostle Paul, wrote this letter to a church located in a city called Philippi. And one of the reasons we're going to take a look at this letter is because in light of our spiritual focus for this year, being called to Christ, called to serve, we see a joyful, loving, grace-filled relationship of a missionary along with a church who are full of joy as they discover on this journey called life how they may be able to partner with one another and to serve their Savior together. And so I pray that we can learn some lessons from that um, here as we look at the book of Philippians. So if you're able, I want to invite you to please stand for the reading of his word. I'm going to read from the first 11 verses of Philippians, Philippians 1. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, so please give your, your open hearts and minds to the reading of God's Word. Starting with verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all the remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And this is God's word. You can take your seats. Well, when we look at the book of Philippians, we can start by just asking a simple question that you can reflect for yourself. And that question is, in this moment, as you think about life, are you happy? Are you content? Are you joyful? Is that something that characterizes your life in terms of a regular rhythm and flow, that there's a general gratitude, a general contentment that seems to characterize your words, your life, your feelings, and your relationships? Do people around you which may be one of the greatest indicators, would they say about you, that person seems joyful? Does it, that person seems content? And part of the challenge of this is to really make a wise discernment because oftentimes when we think about joy, we just think about temperament. And that means that we think gospel joy looks like people who are extremely extroverted, emotionally expressive, and we think gospel joy is someone who's always smiling and high energy. And certainly that could be the case, but I really doubt the Apostle Paul was like that. And I don't know if Jesus is always like that. Because gospel joy doesn't come out just in an extroverted temperament. It comes out in this cool, content, calm, this sort of serene, peaceful life. And no matter what the circumstances, there's always an element for people who really understand gospel joy, that they have moments of suffering and setbacks and difficulty, and yet they always still seem content. 
It doesn't mean life isn't real or hurtful, but they seem a little bit more steadfast, a little bit more joyful, a little bit more thankful. And that's what I want to discover with you, because if you want that kind of life, then what Christianity says to you is that you can only get that sort of joy, this joy that is uh, permanent, that permeates your life, no matter your circumstances, you can only get that in a relationship with Jesus. I mean, you just have to kind of consider this for a moment. When you look at the richest people in this world, they're not always happy. In fact, they, they commit suicide, they're depressed. You could look at the most famous people of this world, the success and fame and glory that they've accumulated over their lives, and you can recognize that they also fall into drugs and depression. They're not always happy. You could look at people who are, have experienced every kind of vacation, every kind of hotel, every kind of meal, the greatest restaurants that you could ever have. You know, in fact, case in point, I met with somebody recently, and he said he went on a date. And he said he was going to one of these Japanese restaurants in Midtown New York, and he said it was the most expensive meal that he ever actually had. And it was a meal that he spent well into four figures just for two people. And he says, after that meal, I didn't feel that much happier. So if you're like that, then we, at least we could say the world may have a, an answer of joy, whether it's going to be power, money, relationships, or success. But what I'm here to tell you is that all of those things, as good as they are, they'll fail you. Because the only way to have a true steadfast joy is going to be internally in a relationship with this guy named Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're going to look at Philippians, because there's this journey that we call life. And Paul tells us on this journey, you can cultivate a steadfast, heavenly, authentic, real joy that can permeate and flow out of your life no matter your circumstances. Because the letter of Philippians is really a guide to discovering that joy, this heavenly joy that comes out in everyday lives, everyday relationships. One way to think about this is that Philippians is a guide to discover heavenly joy in earthly moments, heavenly worldly joy in everyday decisions. Because Paul himself writes this letter, he's in prison, but he's overflowing with joy. So he's not just teaching about it, he's showing you it. He's giving you an example of this joy. 20 times in this letter, which is only a handful of pages, Paul uses words like joy and love and affection over 20 times, expressing his feelings, expressing his thoughts in his heart. It captures the warmth of relationships and really the joy of spiritual partnership. And Paul writes this book from Roman imprisonment, which tells us that he's in chains, he's awaiting a trial, he's most likely going to face martyrdom, he's going to die for his faith, and yet he writes this delicate letter to the people at Philippi talking about joy. I mean, it's such a special letter, even when you look at the introduction, because when he goes to write a letter to the Galatians, he goes right into it and he says, okay, I have a problem with your doctrine. And then he goes and he writes a letter to 1 Corinthians and he says, okay, thank God every day for you, but have a problem with your holiness in the way that you're living life. And then he'll write a letter like Romans and he says, okay, I'm going to give you a theological encyclopedia on redemptive history. But here, there's a warmth of relationships. There's a joy. There's a tenderness. This is a delicate, special, unique letter because the church of Philippi held a special place in Paul's heart. And we can have that as well. We can cultivate that in the gospel. Philippi was a city in terms of background, founded in the 4th century BCE. It was named after this guy named Philip II. And all of you are already tuning out because here's a boring history, but you may know his father. That was Alexander the Great. 
So now you're sort of chiming into where the history was. This city was later conquered by Rome, and in the mid-second century, it became, in many ways, just like Rome. Rome was basically New York City. So this was a mini New York City. It was a city ruled by Roman law, reflected Roman lifestyle, and what that meant was that it was extremely diverse, different worldviews, very pluralistic. It was the hustle and bustle of a city, a lot of economic activity. It was a lot of challenges to presenting the gospel because just like today, it's hard to say Jesus is better than fame, Jesus is better than comfort, Jesus is better than a career. So just in the same way like Los Angeles or San Francisco, even in Orange County, this is a similar context of a very diverse metropolitan cultural context. It was very similar to Rome politically, socially, even architecturally. Paul planted this church according to Acts 16, which we'll look at, and later on, he's taken as a prisoner. He's writing this letter talking about joy from prison, and the church sends Epaphroditus with a gift to Paul to say, I love you. Paul sends this letter, Philippians, with Epaphroditus back to Philippi, and in the letter he says, I love you. That's the relationship here. And so when we look at this in the beginning, I want to challenge you and to hopefully discover and discuss with you how can we have this same sort of relationship? How can we have this joy? And there are three things, very briefly, that we could look at in the introduction of this letter about this thankfulness and this joy. First, we'll look at who Paul is. Secondly, we'll look at what does he do. And then thirdly, we'll look at how does he feel. So who is he, what does he do, and how does he feel? One way to think about this is that we'll look at Paul's identity, secondly, we'll look at Paul's activity, and thirdly, we'll look at Paul's affections. So let's look at this, who he is, the Apostle Paul. Read with me verses 1 to 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Like in a nutshell, who is Paul? How does he identify himself? Now keep in mind, Paul, who was the greatest preacher, the greatest missionary, he was the greatest church planner. Even before he was Christian, he was the greatest Jewish theologian, went to the best schools, had the greatest tutors. You know, if he did his PhD, his academic advisor would be the cream of the crop at the forefront of their particular discipline. That's the Apostle Paul before he was Christian. But here, who is Paul? How does he choose to identify himself? I'm a servant. In fact, it says very simply in verse 1, I'm a servant and you're saints. That's what he's saying. You're saints, you're set apart, God loves you, but I'm a servant. And what's interesting about Paul that always shows his character is that Paul, he writes in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. That's unique to Philippians. Do you know why? Because sometimes Paul in the introduction will list him and other people, but he usually just gives an identity marker just for himself. Unique to Paul, that he was special, he's writing this letter. But this is the only introduction where he groups himself with his protege. He says, Paul and Timothy, together we are both servants. Usually it's saying something like, Paul the apostle with my co-laborer, Timothy. But here he's saying, Paul and Timothy, we're together. We're servants of Jesus. It always showed, already shows in verse 1 this partnership, this humility, this love for somebody else. He doesn't want glory. He doesn't say, I'm writing this, the Apostle Paul, the only apostle, the greatest apostle, the wonderful apostle. He doesn't say that. He's not trying to get all the claim in the spotlight. He's showing his gospel joy and partnership. And he says the only time in all of his letters, Paul and Timothy, 
We are servants. We're together. That's how he understands himself. So it's basically saying, Paul and Timothy, who are you guys? What are your credentials? If I looked you up on LinkedIn, what does it say? Tell me about yourself. We're servants. We, we, we serve Jesus. No autobiographical introduction, no trumpeting of his credible past, no peculiarities of the present, just simply, hey, Paul and Timothy, we're here, we're here to serve Jesus. That's characteristic of Paul. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about himself and he says, I don't want to compare myself to others. He says, Apollos is great, I do my part, there's going to be Jesus. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, listen, listen, what the heck is Paulos? Who, is, who am I? What is the Apostle Paul? And if you look at the Greek in there, it says, what is Paul? It doesn't use the masculine pronoun because Paul is male. It uses a neuter pronoun in the Greek tes New Testament because it's saying not who is Paul, but what is Paul. In terms of his identity, it's not who he is and what he's accomplished. It's what he does. It's what, what he's about. What what is he about? What's the essence of him? And he's saying, basically, it doesn't matter who I am. It's just what I am. And what I am is a servant of Jesus. I am a servant. Friends, the reason that's important is because implicitly, not just because of our theme, call to Christ, call to serve, is that one of the fundamental identities for you as a Christian, that if you take this posture to begin this journey of discovering this joy that is otherworldly and heavenly that the world can never take away, the beginning starting point for you to be able to take that journey to discover this gospel joy is to humble yourself and understand, first and foremost, as a believer, I'm a servant. And that is so antithetical to the world. The world will say, fight for yourself, accumulate for yourself, procure for yourself, establish yourself. And there's nothing wrong with that, but fundamentally in your heart, if the gospel hits and the spirit overflows, you will understand yourself as a servant. You're not going to clamor for clout, clamor for power, recognition. Paul even says, what is Paul? I'm a servant. He says, Paul and Timothy, we're together. We're both just servants. And that's the posture, that's the identity that you and I will have to cultivate in our understanding before we can ever attain to this idea of gospel joy, that you want to serve people and serve Jesus, that you're not about people serving you, that you are someone who serves others. And this leads us to our second point. What does Paul do then? Well, he's a servant, but what does he do in the first 11 verses? Well, let's look at verses 3 to 5. He says there, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer, every prayer of mine for you making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So in a word, what does he do? He prays. See, one way to apply your identity as a servant for others is the way that you pray for others. Does that make sense? It's pretty simple. We'll look at later with his affections. One of the ways that Paul loves his people is that he prays for his people. And that's what we have to consider. It's very simple. Paul's not trying to confuse us. He writes this letter so we could real easily understand it. So it's something that kind of rubs up against our natural tendencies. But if you say, I am a servant, the one question I would ask you, do you pray for the people you serve? If I say, do you love your people? And you say, yes. The one question I would say right off the bat, do you pray for your people? 
And if you never prayed for somebody in this room regularly, consistently, you may not be as much of a servant as you think. You may not be as loving as you would like to be. Because Paul says right off the bat, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer. He prays a prayer of thanksgiving. And the way that he prays, there's a strength, there's a magnitude. His thankfulness for the church is ginormous. I mean, it's emphasized in verse 3 to 4, but he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now, the magnitude is comprehensive. All my remembrance of you, always and in every prayer of mine for you all. I mean, it is a big prayer, always praying for you in all my remembrance, in every way, you're my prayers all of you. And when Paul says, I thank God always for you, it doesn't mean he's always just praying 24-7. He's saying basically, every time I pray, I thank God for you. Now, that's, this is tough. No, this message is not easy to preach. Do you know why? Because when Paul is talking about praying for the church, always thanking God for the church, thanking God for the church, man, it really just hits home for me because I don't pray a lot of times thanking God for the church. I pray, God, woe is me, you know, the valley of shadow and death. <laughs> you know, when I pray about the church, I am super thankful for all of you and many of you. But there is a subtle rebuke to thank God more because of you. Your service, your sacrifice, your fellowship, your grace, your understanding. And so it's a subtle rebuke to me because I oftentimes pray, God, change them. Make them more loving. Make them more understanding. Change me. And that's a good prayer, but Paul teaches us, in light of asking God to change people and bring healing, do we ever thank God for one another? Ian Bounds, this 19th century Methodist writer, he said this on prayer. Giving thanks is the very life of prayer. It is the fragrance and music. It's poetry and crown, the very life of prayer, thankfulness. And the reason that I think part of us won't always thank God for each other, for the church, is that probably because we're used to being not a servant, but being served. Now, they always say entitlement kills gratitude. And I think if there's any day and age or any culture that really knows entitlement well, it's probably the culture that you and I live in. We are oftentimes entitled. We work hard. A lot of us are very smart. You have a lot of degrees. And so sometimes we just feel entitled. You know, church should be like this. People should say this to me. I should have this opportunity the schedule, the food, whatever it may be, we're used to a very consumeristic culture that says everything will be catered to your personal preferences. That makes us entitled, and entitlement kills gratitude. But Paul is praying and thanking God for this church. Let's quickly look at this. Three things that Paul thanks God for in this church. He sets a model for how you and I can cultivate thankfulness in our hearts. First, in verse 3, he's thankful because he just remembers the people. In verse 3, Paul is doing that with the church. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. When he thought about them, he was thankful for them. Now, it implies that he thinks about the church a lot, and when he thinks about the church, he remembers them, and he's thankful for them. So one way for you to be thankful is to simply remember all the evidences of grace and all the love of this church. For you yourself, it implies this kind of, you know, this sort of sharp, uh, consideration application. If somebody remembers you, if somebody remembers you, are they going to thank God for you? Just something to think about. 
Is there anybody in this room, if they remember you, are they going to thank God for you? Because either it's going to be the negative side in which you're just always criticizing, always complaining, you know, always sinning, always causing division in the church. Or even the other category is that you're just absolutely neutral. You're, you're just a question mark on your face because you're not integrated and you're not committed and you're not challenged and you're not sacrificing. So either you're not really engaged or you're just a taker or a division maker. Either way, the challenge is if anybody remembers you, do you make a difference in somebody else's life because of Jesus? Does somebody, will somebody thank God for you? Now, that's a very simple application, as weird as it sounds. The gospel is saying, maybe the challenge for you is to go out there into the world and live in such a way that's authentic so that when somebody remembers you, they're going to say, I thank God always for you. That's the first thing that Paul is thankful for. The second thing in verse 5, he's specific. He's saying, I'm thankful for this church because of partnership, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Partnership is where we get that word fellowship, koinonia. It's, it's thankfulness for this fellowship, this commitment with each other, this partnership that we have, that we're doing a shared life in some ways with one another. And this shared life, friends, this is where it's hard. It's not a shared life of natural personalities. It's not a shared life of living in the same zip code. It's not the shared life of affinities, like tasting clothes or music or vacation spots or hobbies. All of that is great. But this shared life, this koinonia, this partnership is really about a common grace. We are partakers of the same grace. Now, Paul and the church, they had nothing in common. He was Jew, they were Gentiles. You know, they were Greek. The one thing they had in common was that they had the truth of the gospel. So that's what cultivated and grounded their, their commonality, their partnership, their community, their koinonia. It's not just going to be similar life stage or that their children are the same age. It's not just going to be because you get my humor and then we get each other. But their fellowship, their partnership that Paul is so thankful for is saying, we're in this together because of this thing called the gospel. You know, Emerson is one who said, do you love me? That question means, do you see the same truth? Do we value the same truth? Do we care about the same truth? That's literally what Emerson's saying. And the Apostle Paul would absolutely agree with Emerson. He's saying, yes, the church of Philippi and us, we have nothing in common. Philippi is a mini Rome. I don't have a metropolitan life. Paul is saying, I care about missions. I care about the gospel. I care about discipleship. And so do the Philippians. And they have a fellowship, a partnership, a grounding in the gospel, which tells us, friends, do you want joy? If you look for this joy, the one thing it's saying to create thankfulness is not first to remember people in a good way, but it's saying that unless you truly ground your life in some form in this gospel, this partnership, this koinonia of Jesus Christ, unless you ground your life in that, you'll never have this heavenly joy in earthly moments. You can have hints of it, you can have tastes of it, but you won't have the everlasting feeling of it which only comes when you live your life grounded together in this joy called the gospel of Jesus. But thirdly, Paul thanks for the church by remembering them. He thanks them for their partnership, but lastly, he thanks God for the church, for what God is doing in their lives. That comes in verse 6 because it says, I am sure of this, and he's confident, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's thanking God for God continuing to work. You know, this is so different because 
What happens for you and me when there's somebody in this church that we don't like or gossips about us, offends us, hurts us, neglects us? No, understandably, we'll get angry. We will protect ourselves, and so we'll avoid that person. No, it's understandable. But Paul has an absolutely different approach. He says for people who are difficult, people who are hard, people who have offended him, people who want to kill him. He says, I thank God that he's not done with you. He's began a good work, and he's going to complete it till the end. The person whose words are always abrasive and offensive, and you're just worried because you never know what their words are going to come out of their mouths because it's like a volcano and it's volatile. God is not done with you yet. For the person who you've been trying to disciple for 10 years and they still haven't read three chapters in the Bible and they still come out, but they come out maybe once or twice every month on Sunday and you're just like, God, are you working? It's been years. They don't care about the Bible. don't pray. They haven't served. Rather than frustration, Paul is saying, God, I'm thankful because you're not done with them. The people who always want power, people who want recognition, people who expect are entitled to have a certain position and posture at church, and they always cause headaches with decisions of the church and direction of the church and the, the culture of the church, whereas oftentimes we're saying, just change that person, make that person different. Paul is saying, I thank God, because for that person who has power idolatry, God's not done yet. That's what Paul is thankful for. It's his biggest reason, his most confident reason. He says, I am sure of this, I know it. God has worked in you a new creation, and he's not done with that. So Paul is so thankful. You want to, on this journey of joy, you want to cultivate thankfulness, it's right there as a recipe. Thank God by remembering each other. Secondly, thank God that your life is grounded in the gospel, in this partnership. I love you, you love me, we're in this together. Thank God as hard as people are, to remember God will complete the work and he's not done yet. That's how thankfulness would work. Let me say this before we go to our third point. In one level, the mission of the church, my relationship, leadership's relationship with the church, your relationship with one another, the mission of the church is absolutely grounded on your ability and my ability to be thankful for one each other or each other. It's really simple. The moment that you are no longer thankful for me and the moment that I am no longer thankful for you, that is when sin and Satan will creep in and this partnership of joy has taken the first step towards implosion. Does that make sense? The moment that you are no longer thankful for leadership and no longer thankful for each other, that is the moment when our vision and mission, this joy of journey, will begin to fracture, crack, and employed, implode. Because the longevity of any pastor and the longevity of every member and the longevity of us moving along by God's grace towards this vision that God has given us to impact Orange County by making disciples that are missions-minded, reformed, gospel-centered, and empathetic, that mission and journey completely depends on the ability for you and I to be thankful for each other to God for one another. That's what Paul's trying to tell us. The longevity of the church, the longevity of the pastor, the longevity of members is built on the ability and the capacity for you and I in the gospel of Jesus to be thankful to God for one another. That is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Last but not least, 
We looked at who Paul is, we looked at what he does, and lastly, we're going to look at, really briefly, what he feels, his affection. Read me verses 7 to 8. Verses 7, and he says, uh, we see in verses 7 to 8 some of the most heartfelt expressions that anyone has for anyone. Now, as much as Paul has thanksgiving for Philippians, it was wide his affections for Philippians were deep. So verses 7 to 8, it says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers of me with grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you yearn with the affection of Jesus. I mean, this is just such an emotional and pastoral plea. He has a heart. He's saying that my heart longs for you. It, it, it has a heartache. You know, one of my professors, he said about this sort of heartache is basically uh, using a metaphor. He's saying like sometimes in your older age when you eat spicy foods and all of a sudden you feel that you have heartburn. And there's like an aching, there's a burning. He says, that's sort of what Paul is saying here. He has a heartburn for you. He has a heartburn for for the church. There's an affection. And so some of us, especially maybe like new life, you know, Reformed in theology, I oftentimes think, if you don't know what Reformed theology is, it's one of our core values, but I do think it kind of attracts and it, you know, people who come to a Reformed church tend to be a little bit more heady, a little bit more intellectual. You know, we're not the most emotionally expressive, and that's okay. We're not, the most, we're not the most empathetic. You know, we have to grow in that. But here's a really big corrective to that, because as wonderful as Reformed theology is, that's the foundation of our church, Paul is so emotional. He is so empathetic. He's so heartfelt. He says that, I feel this way for you. I hold you in my heart, and I yearn for you. You know, even in verse 7 when he says, um, I yearn for you with all the affection to feel this. He says, I feel this way for you. Did you know that word feel is actually the Greek word for thinking? And it's weird. It's literally the word for think. Verse 7 is like, I I think this way for you. But Paul, he's saying there's something about the Christian life is that when the penny drops and the Holy Spirit penetrates your heart and you get the love of Jesus for you, he doesn't say, I just think for you. I think about you. He translates that word. I feel for you because it affects the mind and the heart. It's both head and heart. Now, as one commentator has said, it expresses not merely the activity of the intellect, but also the movement of the will. It is both interest and decision and emotion coming together in this intersectionality at the same time. It's both head and heart. He says, I think this way about you. I feel this way. I yearn for you because as C.S. Lewis once said, affection is responsible for nine-tenths of whatever solid and durable happiness there is in our lives, in our natural lives. Affection, gospel-informed, spirit-filled, this thinking, this feeling. And that's what Paul had, actually, for the church. Man, this is, this is a tough passage. The church had an affection for Paul, sent Epaphroditus with a gift. Paul had this affection for the church, sent a letter of love back with Epaphroditus. He held them in his heart because they were together in grace. They were committed to him, and he was committed to them. He suffered, and they cared for him. And they all rejoiced together. When he was in need, they sent Epaphrodites with a gift. They were attached to him. They were together with him. It's a very different form when we see and hear these days too many churches having division. You know, Alistair Begg once said in a sermon I listened to, when you have a new pastor, it says, first, they will idolize you. Second, they will criticize you. And then the third year... They'll ostracize you. 
But that's not here. That's not what we see here. There's an affection, a commitment. They're partakers. They're in this together because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I'm trying to say is this. When you look at this joy of journey, it's not just to understand your identity as a servant, to serve one another. It's not just your ability to pray to God and thank God for each other. It's this idea to pray that you could have the same heartburn for each other as Jesus has for you. Now, did you know that the church of Philippi was probably started in the book of Acts chapter 16? Acts chapter 16. I love that passage. I preached on it. Paul's evangelizing. There's three people. There's Lydia, who was in the fashion industry, really rich, well-to-do, had a big house. You know, some things never change because they say probably the house church started and met in Lydia's house. The second person you have is just a middle-aged, blue-collar worker. He was a jailer. And the third you have is a millennial. It was a young girl who was oppressed, marginalized, and demon-possessed. But on surface level, you look at the start of a church plant like Philippi, and these, this is a great church planning group because they always say strategically, you know, you want somebody who's well-to-do because they could fund the church and they could be in their house. But you also want somebody who's sort of wise, who has lived life, and then you have the Philippian jailer who they say may be in his 50s, so you have a seasoned person of life that could give some gravitas to the community. But you also want to be relevant and you want to attract young people, so you need a millennial just like the, the little girl who's demon-possessed. Wonderful church planning group. But that problem is that none of them were believers when they first started. God made them the church planning group. The gospel hid and opened up Lydia's heart, so it says that the gospel is actually better than wealth and better than prosperity, better than success. The gospel hit the jailer's life because he's saying someone who's probably midlife crisis, wondering what's the next point of his relevance, what's the next stage of his life, he's saying your relevant significance doesn't come in your occupation, but it comes in the gospel. And to the millennial, the little girl who was demon-possessed and marginalized, she was ashamed of herself. She didn't have community. We didn't know her parents. She didn't say anything. But the gospel freed her so that the demon left, and now she was set free. That true freedom isn't expressive individualism to discover yourself, but it, true freedom comes in the freedom the gospel of Jesus has for you. Lydia, a businesswoman, a middle-aged man, midlife crisis and jailer, a marginalized millennial, the gospel made them the church planning group. That's the church that Paul says, I have heartburn to see you. Isn't that crazy? This ragtag group of people that are so different, but they have a partaker of grace. They have grounded in the gospel. Paul says, I thank God for them. I yearn for you. I have an affection to see you. As one J.B. Lightfoot has says, Paul's pulse beats with the pulse of Christ, and his heart beats with the heart of Christ because he yearns, it pulses for this church. His heart beats for this church. He wants to see them. He loves them. And this is the community of the gospel of Jesus Christ for them. I thought about what, as we come to a close, what, a, what an illustration of this gospel joy would look like, and the best way I could describe it is just imagine a group of believers out in a wonderful, picturesque garden, because the story of redemption starts in a garden, and I think it ends with a garden. And you know what's in the garden? There's a tree that started in Genesis, and there's a tree in Revelation. 
What does this joy and contentment look like? You imagine that there are a group of believers holding hands together in a circle in this beautiful garden that has the perfect picture and the perfect bustling of the leaves and the wind blowing through the trees and there's a harmony and there's a tapestry of wonderful colors that come together in the most beautiful way and believers are holding each other's hands in a circle and in the middle of that circle is the presence of God shown by the tree of life. And these believers have all different experiences of this inner light radiating from that tree that saturates all the believers. And some of the believers, their heads are down and they're crying and their tears flowing down from their eyes because in the presence of God, they finally have relief and healing. Other believers in that circle are probably just content with a subtle smile in the, ter- the corner of their mouth tilted up because they're just in a place of pleasance and contentment. Other believers have their hands raised up and they're worshiping and they're smiles and they're praising God. And that's probably the biggest and clearest picture of what this joy offers to you. It's a commonality, a picture of connection and care, a picture of peace and contentment, of the radiating glory and the love of God in that tree coming into the believers who are all different experiences because in the gospel you share and are partake, partakers of Jesus Christ. And the believers have together a joy and contentment that doesn't come from their circumstances, but comes in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And my guess is that picture of joy is so far from all of us, many of us. You haven't had that moment in which something clicks and you experience that joy. And that's why I invite you to stick with us, because as we look at this letter of Philippians, we're taking this joy on the journey of Jesus Christ to discover that joy and cultivate that within ourselves so that this illustration won't just be a metaphor or an image, but it will be your life and mine. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the gospel of Jesus Christ that has come into the darkness of our sin and heart so that we may have a joy in our relationship with you and one another. Lord, help us, Lord, to really find ultimately our contentment and our gratitude and our thankfulness and a sense of peace and calm and an otherworldly heavenly joy in earthly moments in our relationship with Jesus Christ. May it grow in us, may it change us, may it transform us. We thank you so much and pray this in his name. Amen.